you would, would you open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9? We'll read from verses 37, the verse after where we finished this morning, and we'll read to verse 44. So Jesus and his three disciples had just come from the mountain. They come from the transfiguration that they encounter with uh, with Moses, with Elijah. And this is them coming back off that hill the next day, the mountain the next day. And it reads, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? Bring your son here. Whilst he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that can penetrate our hearts like no words of man can. Lord, open our hearts afresh this evening. Speak to each one of us, we pray. Amen. It's a bit of a contrast, this passage. It's a little bit of a contrast from where we came from this morning. And as I said, this video has some of the ideas that are probably buzzing around the head of the father. This father who has taken his son to Jesus. Where are you, God? I can't hear you. I can't see you. I'm lost. I'm tired. My son is so ill. I need your help. We move this evening from the mountain of glory to the valley of desperation. And we're also met with another testimony. We read this morning of the three testimonies. The physical change in Jesus' appearance. Elijah and Moses coming to Jesus. And God the Father himself speaking. And we see a fourth testimony of Jesus this evening we see a miracle I want to focus on the same questions that we asked this morning what did they hear what did they see and what was their reaction we're going to look at three reactions the reaction of Jesus the reaction of the disciples and the reaction of the father so let's fire in firstly what did they hear verses 38 to 41. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. The first thing that was heard by this crowd was a conversation between a father and Jesus. They hear this father that is beyond desperate. They hear this man that is begging Jesus to have a look at his son. And it's no surprise because it's a father who is evidently broken over what is happening to his son. It is a father that has exhausted every possible idea and way of removing the spirit from his son. 
So little was the disciples' faith that not even they could remove this demonic spirit. This demon causes the sun to shake and to foam at the mouth and it is persistent. It hardly leaves him and it shatters him. We're also going to dive a little bit into the couple of other gospel accounts in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 because I think they add a lot to this story. Um, but we see that in those passages that it causes the boy to grind his teeth. The spirit throws the boy into fire and into water. The spirit completely controls the life of this little boy. This man's life will be dominated by the spirit that seizes his son because it never leaves him. But he now knows that Jesus, this Jesus that he has heard of, this Jesus that travels around and does miracles that can heal all people, he has heard that this one, that this man is coming. We read the first word in uh, verse 38, he calls him teacher. In Matthew 17, he uses the word Lord. The man had some kind of faith here. The man had some kind of understanding of who Jesus was. He recognized him as a man that had the power to heal. And he believes that it is Jesus and only Jesus that has the power to bring sanity and healing to the soul of his son. And Jesus' response that he said before the crowd... O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? I think most of this is aimed at the disciples. I think Jesus has come from this incredible experience down this mountain. And he has found the disciples' faithless inability to act. That clearly grieved the Father, but also Jesus. He's not speaking, I don't think, to the boy's father when he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. But I think we see something quite rare from Jesus here. I think we see his utter sorrow and his utter frustration. He kind of hoped that he could leave these nine disciples for a little while and come down and they would be okay. But we find them down this mountain arguing with the scribes that were present. What a contrast it is for Jesus. When we think that Jesus used to, to heaven and eternity where the angels instantly do his work. Here he is grieving at the blindness of the people that have spent time with him. The faithlessness of the people that he has poured himself into. Especially his disciples. Those that he has chosen. Those that he has taught. Those that he has shown incredible ways of his unique power and authority. And we see an entire generation of faithless Jews represented here by this crowd. The disciples, the self-righteous scribes that were constantly with Jesus looking to trip him up. To discredit him wherever they could. And even the father's faith was not complete as we read in Mark 9.24. I believe, help my unbelief. But the people weren't just faithless. They were also twisted. The NRSV translation uses the word perverse. Many of Jesus' listeners were morally perverse people. They were morally perverted. But Jesus is speaking primarily here of a spiritual perversion that's inevitable for all of those who do not believe. Any person who doesn't have genuine faith in God and the work of Jesus Christ cannot help but have a distorted view of God and who he is. 
And we read the words of utter frustration. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? This is probably as much to Jesus himself as it is for those that he is with. How long do I have to put up with you for? Obviously Jesus becoming more and more anxious as he starts to get closer and closer to Jerusalem. As he begins this journey, as he knows what is to come, what is in front of him. He's just shared the most extraordinary time with his heavenly father upon that mountain. And now here he is. In his humanness we see, we see his sorrow, we see his frustration. We can see that the unbelief and the twistedness of the people were a burden to Jesus. I think it's interesting we look at why did the crowds gather to follow Jesus. Most of them, I think, gather out of personal intrigue. And some of them out of selfishness. We want to gather because we want to see what's happening out of curiosity. We want to know what's going on. Maybe the little personal benefit of actually being healed by him. And obviously these Jewish leaders follow him to try and convict him of some sort of crime. And although the disciples knew that he was the promised Christ, they were constantly confused by the meanings of his teaching and of his work. And we have the father that says, I beg you, look at my son. Have mercy on my son. He's asking for the sympathy and the compassion and just in complete anguish. He begs God. I wonder what God thinks as he looks upon our twisted and our faithless generation. As he looks out into this world, it must break the heart of our Savior. As he looks out into this world and sees where we are. The final words we read of this section is he says, bring him to me, Jesus says, to that boy's father. So what did they see? Verse 42, whilst, whilst he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. The sight of this boy must have been utterly terrifying. This boy that is thrown into water, into fire, you, don't, you, you get scars if you uh, boy, put boiling water over your skin. Or if not, you put it over. But if boiling water touches your skin, you scatter. So if this boy has been thrown into fire, this boy will be disfigured physically. I can't imagine what that would have looked like. But there would have been something terrifying going on here. And it got me thinking about this idea of desperation. Can you think of a moment when you've hit complete and utter desperation? One of my most desperate moments, I was 11 and I was on holiday in Tunisia. And I left my Game Boy Advance on the bus. Our transfer bus that took us in, I left it sitting on the bus. And I don't know if I've ever known devastation quite like that moment. And I remember my dad going to reception, having a chat with him. And saying, can we get this back? And I just remember those moments of absolute panic. For hours, hours of absolute panic of, oh my goodness, my Game Boy that I only got at Christmas, am I going to get it back? My absolute favourite thing. And at 11, something of just utter desperation as we sat and waited for the call as to whether or not they found it. They did, I got my Game Boy back and everything was wonderful. But in a vastly more serious context, we are found here with an utterly devastated and desperate man. We meet a father who's virtually on his knees begging Jesus. Think about it. What happens when we worry? We don't sleep well. 
This boy has carried this for so long. The father is tired. He is a tired, tired man. There is the end of his tether. He is strained and he is utterly hopeless. This is what we see. This is what this crowd sees. And they see this son. And we see this group of scribes that are just waiting to trip Jesus up. The spirit that possesses this son is a spirit that shatters him. It indicates to us the seriousness of his condition. That it throws him into fires, that it throws him into water. What do we see? We see a boy that is in desperate need of God and in desperate need of help. So what I want to do is I want to spend most of our time looking at this, looking at the responses and the reactions that we find here. So firstly, we come to the response of Jesus. What did they do? Jesus, the second half of verse 42. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. What did Jesus do? Jesus rebuked that spirit and it was gone. There's not a lot more to say about it than that because that is our God. Because our God commands all things. As Spurgeon put it, the demon tried one last throw so that the crowd thought the boy was dead. We read in Mark 9, but we know that Jesus has that authority. Jesus has that authority and when the demon was cast out, it was gone. How awesome that is. How awesome it is that our God has the power and dominion over all things. Jesus' response to the situation to deal with it, to show something of his awesomeness to the people and to heal this young man. What is the response of the disciples? Mark chapter 9 verses 28 and 29. They asked Jesus, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Yet again, we see a group of disciples who are completely confused and embarrassed. Peter's really not doing very well here. He hasn't done very well in the mountain with his response to Jesus. They're not doing very well here. Jesus has this complete control over evil spirits. He speaks and things are done. But yet it's these disciples that come and they say to him, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus says that these are the kind that can only be driven out by prayer. I can kind of imagine that picture of the disciples standing there in front of the boy. They're almost being this arrogance to the disciples of, yeah, 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 we'll heal him. And they're standing there and they're like, in Jesus' name, be gone. And the boy convulses. The boy throws himself into a well, whatever happens. They come back, so the next disciple steps up. And then in the name of Jesus, be healed. And again, nothing happens. And I think this would go on and on. They're just leading to the utter frustration of this father. Of this man that is so desperate for help. I imagine the demon just laughed. Just laughed. And this boy continued to have these seizures. And the teachers of the law probably gathered round to laugh as well. They probably gathered to make fun of these disciples. Whilst all of this, the boy continued to suffer. We know that when they came off the mountain, the disciples were arguing with the scribes. What a sad, sad state that would have been. For Jesus to have come from all of this to this scene of just squabbling. For this scene of just arguing. The nine disciples should have been able to cast out that demon. 
Jesus had given them the power and the authority, but somehow they had lost that power. What caused that? Their lack of faith. Their lack of prayer. Their lack of discipline. Jesus went. What happened to their faith? What happened to their prayer lives? What happened to their discipline? They started to plummet. These demons can only be cast out through prayer. That indicates there is a lack of prayer going on here. Maybe the nine were jealous because they weren't called up that mountain. Quite probably. During the Lord's absence, they became self-indulgent. They neglected their prayer. Their faith weakened. And then this crisis came and this boy brought before them. And what happened? They were unprepared and they couldn't deal with it. This shows us something of the link between prayer and faith. It shows us that they go hand in hand. We read in Matthew's version of the story, 17, 19 to 20. Because of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Faith like a grain of mustard seed. A picture that we use again and again. And it reflects something, not only the size of faith, because God will honour even the littlest of faith. But a seed is alive. It has life and it has growth. And there is something in that picture that relates to our faith. Faith is like a mustard seed. It is a living faith. It is a faith that must be nurtured. And that must grow. Faith must be cultivated so that it grows. Had these nine disciples been praying, had these nine disciples been disciplining themselves, meditating on the word, then absolutely they would have been able to cast out this demon and rescue the boy. The disciples find themselves in an awful mess yet again. But you can't help but be encouraged to know that if Jesus spent time with those guys, there is hope for all of us. What is the response of this crowd? And all were astonished, verse 43. All were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, they marveled and they were astonished. What did the crowd do once this boy was healed? Not a lot. Because they were so astonished and they were so marveled at the majesty of God. Astonishment. And marvel. The response of the disciples, the response of the crowd. I imagine the disciples wet, their disciples did go and speak to Jesus after this. I imagine the reaction is something similar to the, to the three that were up on the mountain. This reaction of, my goodness, this is God. My goodness, I can't believe what is going on in front of me. Such great words, and all were astonished at the majesty. Of God. Do you know, I hope, I pray that when we get to heaven, there will just be this group of Pharisees that were there on that day that were convicted and they were marveling at the majesty of God and they were transformed and saved that day. I don't know how you couldn't, I don't know how you could see Jesus do all of these exceptional things and still say, I don't want to follow this God. So, my question from this is where is our faith? Are we like this Father? Or are we like the disciples? A quote from R.C. Sproul. He says this. We must never put our faith on autopilot. 
It is not enough for us to depend on the reservoir of faith in our souls. We have to get on our knees. We have to plead with God. We have to make use of all the means of grace that he has given us, his people. For he strengthens his people through those means. Are we like this father? Are we just utterly desperate for answers? Are we not very sure where we stand? We know something about Jesus. There is some kind of faith inside us. We believe that Jesus is this wise teacher, that Jesus is Lord somehow. We believe that he does have the power to transform, but we just don't quite get it. Maybe you're at that point of crying out, there is so much I don't, I don't know God. Help my unbelief. Well, I want to encourage you, if that's where you are, if this is the place that you find yourself in, trust in him. What was Jesus' response to help my unbelief? He healed the son. He proved who he was to this man. All throughout scripture, we find the proof of who God is. How do we help our unbelief? We get to know our God. We can't get to know our God with closed Bible. But our God has revealed himself to us. And as we find those moments where we marvel at his majesty, where we find those moments of the incredible things that he has done, that is where we find our unbelief beginning to change. As Christians, we all have some level of authentic saving faith in our hearts. But we all know that the intensity of our faith is not consistent there is none of us that are saved and are just on this platitude for the entirety of our lives because life doesn't work like that our faith increases and it diminishes no matter how strong your faith is there are times in your life that you are assaulted by the enemy there are times when it feels like our faith is barely hanging on and we pray prayers like this i believe My belief isn't perfect, it's not pure, it's not strong. Help my unbelief, God. Help my unbelief. And when we're assaulted with those doubts, when our faith seems so frail, where do we go? But we go to the source of our faith. We go back to his word. There is no time that our faith is stronger than when we are immersed in his word. Nobody can say that I feel great and I'm in this great place with my God and my Saviour. I'm living a life that glorifies Him. And they have their Bibles closed. Because it's not possible. There is nothing greater than listening to the promises of our Redeemer. Opening up our hearts. That is what kills unbelief. That is what builds a powerful faith. What do we see again and again and again in Scripture? We see a God who proves who He is to His people. And we have the pleasure, we have the pleasure of reading the multitude of accounts of this. I want to encourage you, if you don't read your Bible, open up at the book of Mark. Just read from start to finish. Read of something, everything of who Jesus is from the beginning to the end. And just marvel, I promise you, you will not be able to read that book without going, my goodness, this is my God. My goodness, this is incredible. How is your daily walk? 
The disciples at this point, their prayer lives, their spiritual disciplines were poor when they were not with Jesus. When we pray, do we feel like we're praying to a blank wall? Do we feel like we're staring at a brick wall as we pray that our prayers are going nowhere? But we need to know that God is always near us and God is always listening. Not only does he make all things new, but he wants to make you and I new. But the disciples missed this. The main lesson of this is that there is power of faith to overcome the enemy. Why did the nine fail? Because they have been careless. Because they have been careless in looking after themselves. They were careless in their spiritual walks and they were neglecting Jesus. Jesus had given them the authority to do what they were asked to do. Through their faith. But our faith is cultivated through spiritual discipline and devotion to him. And that wasn't there. I want to go back to Luke 9.43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And they were marveling at everything he was doing. Are you astonished at God's majesty? Do you marvel at him? If you're in a difficult place, if your faith is on the rocks, if you're struggling, the answer isn't fast more, pray more, read our Bibles more. The answer isn't those things because that is just moralism. It's not just do it, do it, do it, do better, be better because that's not the gospel. As we said this morning, it starts with our astonishment with God. This is the place that we must start. Are we astonished by the majesty of God? I want to give you just two examples of scriptures that cause me to marvel at God. Those things that I read, that I'm just blown away by him. Jonah chapter 2 verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It amazes me every time I read it. Because my God has the power to control fish. My God has the power and the ability to do his will. And do all things by whatever means he sees fit. And it just speaks to me. It tells me that my God can truly do absolutely anything. And that causes me to marvel at the majesty of God. The other in John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine. He said it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Those three words. It is finished. In that sentence, Jesus accomplished everything that he seeked and set out to do on that cross. In that moment, the curse of sin was broken and all of those who believe are reconciled with God. It is finished. One of those statements that I cannot help but marvel at him. I want to challenge you. Are you like this crowd that are marveled at the majesty of God? When was the last time that you marveled upon God? Because we cannot marvel at a God that we do not know. We need to know our God. It's great when we find those stories in scripture that just blow us away. Find those. Just read. Read our Bibles and we find just the immensity of our God. Do you believe that God has the ability and the power to transform Are you astonished at the majesty of God? Do you admire God for his beauty?
This crowd did. This crowd saw Jesus firsthand. And their only reaction to him was how majestic is this man. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we're so sorry for when we lose sight of you. We're so sorry for when the things of our lives get in the way of you. But Lord, we thank you that you are a God that does not desert us, that you are not a God that leaves us, but you are a God that walks consistently when we don't. That you are a God that has us at the times that we need you most. Like the Father in his utter desperation, his begging of you, you came and you were with him. And you did all that you needed to do for him. Lord, you do the same for us. You come to us in our need. You comfort us. You love us. You bring your peace and joy and pour your grace upon us. God, would you help us to marvel at your majesty? Will we be blown away by the God that we read through over thousands of years? This God that is the same yesterday, today and forevermore. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are a God that transforms, that you are a God that works. And that you are the God that is with us. In your name we pray. Amen.